I'm Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us today is South Africa's High Commissioner to Sri Lanka, Robina Marx, who also represents South Africa in the Maldives, Bangladesh, as well as Nepal. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. High Commissioner, you're no stranger to Asia, having served previously as South Africa's High Commissioner to Thailand, Laos, Myanmar and Cambodia. Can you please share with us a few of the landmarks in your career and what attracted you to a diplomatic career? That's really an interesting question because it had to it had me think back very deeply, you know. When you are poor, um, and I grew up, you know, in a single-headed household. My mother was a domestic worker for white people in apartheid South Africa. And we, you know, we grew up in moving from different backyard dwellings. And when you are poor, you are focused on survival. You're not thinking about a strategy. You don't really have a plan. And so life tends to happen to you, you know. And so it was never part of my, of my future idea for myself to be a diplomat. In any case, if I had to think of a, of a typical profile of a diplomat, it was always someone who was white and male and wearing a suit. Um, and of course, um, someone who's able, you know, physically able and, and, um, and middle class. And I represented everything that was opposite to that. And so because I couldn't see someone like me occupying that position, um, it was very difficult to imagine myself within that. But in a strange way, um, with the kind of work that I've been doing, um, my passion, my activism for community politics, my involvement in the struggle against apartheid, all of those gave me a set of values which said that I wanted to give and I wanted to serve and I wanted to, to help to make South Africa a better place. And I was fortunate that I then placed myself into situations where I worked for community organizations, um, NGOs who were committed to entrenching values of democracy and justice and fairness. And so from that small little circle, you know, of community work that expanded into what had now become a sphere of influence in the rest of the world. Um, So, yeah, that's how the journey began. It's such an important journey and I would say very, very contrasting from what your early beginnings were to where you are now. Mm. I think I'm still astonished when I look back at the journey that I've traveled. I think that many of my friends at school, you know, would have said she's the least likely to succeed because she was always found marching, you know, or demonstrating, etc., etc. But I believe that if you have a strong set of, of values and principles that speaks to to finding ways wherever you can to influence and impact on the world, to make it a better place, um, then I think that that is what guides you eventually into finding a formal space where you can turn your anger into a strategy, into a plan, into, into an action you know, that can lead to change. So, so for me, um, it starts with 
being very clear about who I am, what I stand for. My values as a diplomat, you know, I stand for things like integrity, patriotism, humility, uh, loyalty as well. Those are the things that guides me. And I think that um, that also ne then explains why it is that, um, that I play a particular type of role and I perform my duties as a diplomat in a particular way as well because I think it's important that we move away from the old conception of what a diplomat is. We don't just attend um, cocktail parties and eat Ferrero Rocher chocolates and drink, you know, lots and lots of glasses of red wine. You know, we are networking, we are facilitators, we are selling what our country has to offer. And so I'm trying consciously to perform what it means to be a diplomat differently. Of course, I still observe protocol, but I can also take off my pearls and my stilettos, you know, and go on a march with women in the north of Sri Lanka, uh, you know, women who have had their relatives disappeared through the 30-year the civil war. So I think it's an exciting time to be a, a female diplomat. I think that we are able to recreate what it means to be a diplomat, to make it more accessible for ordinary people, um, but also to remind people that it is possible to be an ambassador wherever you are, whether you are a school kid who's fighting or speaking up against bullying, you know, you can speak for others. So I don't want us to think to have a very narrow definition of what it means to be an ambassador. You know, you can be an ambassador for any course that you are passionate about. And you've broken the mold, you've changed what the stereotypical view is of what an ambassador is or was when you were growing up by walking in those footsteps and becoming the person you are today. We've spoken a little bit about the importance of action. We've spoken about how you're going to execute your role in a different way. Can you share with us some of the key challenges and what your main objectives are during this term of office? For me, it's really, I mean, firstly, you know, we are exporting the values that animates our constitution. The values that animates our South African constitution speaks to issues like non-discrimination, equality, women's empowerment, justice and fairness. And for me, it's very important that, you know, 24 years after the attainment of our democracy, that the values that drove our new South Africa does not become separated from our daily practice. And I'm saying this because values is essentially what drives our foreign policy as well. Some call it a form of soft diplomacy, but it's what we try to infuse within our foreign policy, the way in which we work with other countries. The particular, um, because one of our strong skills, because we've gone through a reconciliation process, we are able to bring opposing sides together. We are very good facilitators. We are excellent mediators. And of course, as a woman, you know, um, I've been socialized to mediate, um, not always um, 
in terms that was favorable to my own development because my socialization taught me to be a nice, quiet, smiling, agreeable, amiable girl, um, but in ways that I have transformed um, in the world of diplomacy because one of the skills that, that we have as women, we are as diplomats, we are very, very good at what I call parallel track diplomacy. And that essentially means that we can negotiate quite hard, you know, um, in a negotiating room at the UN or the AU where I've represented South Africa in the past. But at the same time, we, we can use our socialization as a transformative tool to lobby, to, um, to cajole, to persuade you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there's a way, there's a quality that we bring to how we engage with, with countries, um, particularly when we are trying to, to bring two sides together. And I've been in situations, you know, in Thailand I was there when the coup took place, the military coup took place, and we assisted them, supported them in, in having a conversation because, of course, we do not want a return of the strong military man, you know. We want democracy to, to be sustained, you know. We want constitutions to be, to be regarded as something that is respected. And in the same way in Myanmar, where I was also accredited, you know, we brought together different opposing groups together and we um, we brought some people out from South Africa to help, you know, the different ethnic groups to come together. And it's the same thing that we are doing in Sri Lanka as well. And so in a wonderful way, I've been privileged to use my experience of having grown up in a part of South Africa and having been a member of a liberation movement that was the oldest in Africa um, and also um, having been in prison as well and having had particular experiences that helped to prepare me for seeing how important it is to bring people together, to have a conversation, you know. Um, and so I'm fortunate that I've been placed in situations like those countries that I've just mentioned, and particularly, of course, lately now in Sri Lanka, where we have been able to use that skill to, to, to quite good effect, you know? So these are almost, one would regard them as negative skills, which you developed because of the circumstances that you were in, but you've been able to put them through on a very positive strategy to derive direct benefit mm -hmm. in new situations and, and particularly what's coming through is about the consultative aspect, the mediating effects and ensuring that there is a, an outcome which is achieved without aggression, mm -hmm. uh, that everyone's on, on the same table. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wanted to ask you our program is all about gender equality, which is increasingly a global focus, and building female leadership capacity is becoming more and more important, not just from a South African point of view, but from a global context. You've held roles in both the private and the public sector. You've specialized in identity politics, diversity management, restorative justice, and gender mainstreaming. Given these types of experiences, how do you see female leadership, whether it's in the private sector, public sector, academia, or, or any other field for that matter? 
It's, it's something, it's an essential value that I absolutely believe in. But at the same time, you know, let, let me start like this. I'll, I'll tell you a little story. In 1992, I was one of South Africa's representatives to the Beijing World Conference on Women. And I was, um, you know, young, sorry-eyed, bushy-tailed, you know. I really thought that we were going to change the world and we were going to do it right there because we had such a powerful group of women from across the world together. And now, um, more than two decades later, I thought that by now I would have retired and I'd have a, a lavender garden and grow olives or, and not talk about gender anymore. Instead, I'm still talking about women's empowerment, gender equality, the need for women's leadership. And so we'd have to ask, why is it that this ideology that is called patriarchy, you know, has been able to be so resilient, so tenacious, so persistent, and that has been able to reshape itself, even in South Africa, where we, where we have an equity discourse, we've got policies, you know, that speaks to 50% of women in leadership and decision-making. You know, we've got a, a ruling party who set a benchmark, a quota for women into local government and into senior government as well. Um, why is it that we, that we still have the sticky floor syndrome for so many women? And a bit of history also about our particular department. I was really the first gender focal per person appointed within this department 10 years ago. And when I started, we only had 23% uh, of women who were ambassadors at the time. By the time that I left to be an ambassador, we stood at 33%. And I've just checked now, we now stand at 37.1%. With senior management, when I started 10 years ago, we were at 18%, we are now at 43.1%. So clearly, you know, we, we have made progress over the years, um, but it needs political will. In our case, what has been incredibly important is that we had a succession of three female foreign ministers who were very, um, you know, we regarded gender, uh, um, women's empowerment and gender equality as critical. And unless you have political will that drives, you know, efforts to mentor women in and into management, you know, um, who make sure that there are enabling mechanisms in place to support them. I just went to the, to the ladies' uh, bathroom just now and I saw one evidence of what I had fought for so hard, you know, 10 years ago. I was saying that as we were designing this beautiful building, stunning building, I said I asked for two things. One, a room where women who were lactating could go and, you know, express milk. And I was, uh, you know, the men were sniggering and laughing and they were saying, what if we drink the milk by mistake? You know, completely ridiculous. I also asked that all of our meeting rooms should have some kind of modesty panel, you know, so that when women sit, you know, we call it mansplaining, when men spread, 
but um, but African women have a particular belt, of course, which we are very proud of. And so there's a woman's planning that takes place. And so, of course, you need some kind of modesty panel because those kind of things all contribute to a sexualized environment in which women become vulnerable. And, and I can see quite clearly that those things are in place right now. So the departments are making, you know, very strong steps to make sure that we have more women in, um, in senior positions, but we still have the majority of women stuck at the bottom, you know. And so there's a hierarchy, there's a triangle almost, you know, where black women are stuck in lower positions, and a few of us are able to progress. And that is why when I was here, I started a mentoring program called Lift As You Climb, because I said it's very, very important that those of us who have been able to get into the senior positions within the organizations, we have a particular responsibility to to, prov to develop access and openings and opportunities for other women as well. And so we had a wonderful mentoring program where women in senior management you know, was, man was mentoring young women within the department, and that worked very, very well. But I also want to caution, I mean, I want to congratulate us that we have been able to, to go this far in terms of numbers. But I also want to say that feminine mass, you know, um, does not always translate into, into feminist acts. And I think it's very, very important that, um, that we recognize that women are also implicated and enmeshed um, um, and I've learned what it means to be a woman and a leader, you know, from an organizational practice that is male, you know. And so for us to, to, to just look at numbers and ignore what the impact or the consequence or the translation of the numbers is in better outcomes for women would also be a mistake. So numbers for me is absolutely necessary but um, it's not sufficient to ensure the type of gender transformation within any institution that will ensure that um, the gender equality is routinized. You know, it's not something that we are surprised about anymore. I, I think it's very important that women bring their gender with them into the room. You know, I think that it would be foolish for me to say that I'm South African and that's where it ends. I have to say that I'm a South African and my location is also, you know, part of uh, an intersecting set of identities. I'm female, you know, I am physically able for the moment. Um, I am, um, you know, I'm a, a middle-class woman. Um, I'm a light-skinned black woman, which also privileges me in a particular way in a world that is so racist. You know, so I have to, I have to recognize the set of privileges that I have and find ways of using that to also get other women in, you know, into management. I do not want to be exceptional. I would hate to look around and see that I'm the only woman in the room. It's not a source of pride. It's a source of shame if that happens. So there's the quantitative aspect mm. of getting the numbers through, and the stats you've just described really show a clear trend of succession. I, like you, 
have dwelled on Beijing and thought that it would be a case of almost flipping the switch, 30% is going to come in, a decade down the line, 50%. And for most sectors, we're still under the 30% mm. level. What do you think went wrong from Beijing? I really just think it's patriarchy. I think that we underestimated its strength. I, th- I think that we that we um, we underestimated its ability to be a shape shifter. You know, so that even if you if the formal talk is is gender equality, you know, I I've now discovered that. I mean, I think that there's uh, you know there's certain terms and concepts that's trendy over the years. And, and gender equality became one of the criteria or the hallmarks of good governance and responsible um, government as well. And so gender became a, a, a tick mark that says that you are doing something, you know. And so there's a glass wall between policy speak and policy do, you know, and, and, it's, and it's within that, that gap. You know that that women um, that women fail, um, and the question has to be asked: um, Did we fall or were we pushed? You know, um, and I believe very very strongly that we were pushed. I believe you know many people talk about gender, but I think still extremely important to talk about women's only programs. I love the work that the feminists in the 70s and the 60s were doing, the consciousness raising workshops where we talked about ourselves, about who we are, where we were able to surface all of those aspects of our socialization that enabled us to develop a feminist consciousness of what of how we wanted to, you know, how we wanted to enter the workforce, you know, um, run our, our own companies, etc. And I almost feel as if in the in the current um, way in which feminism is understood and and and, um, and practice, you know, there's a, there's a step that we are missing where we work, where we recognize fundamentally that the personal is also profoundly political, you know, and that it's okay for women to meet on their own, you know. I think that we need men as partners. Um, I think it's completely necessary, but I also think that we need women's only spaces where we can talk about the kind of um, inhibiting factors within ourselves, you know, what we were taught because the world was interpreted for us by our parents who were also socialized, you know. And so how we perform what it means to be a woman is a space that sometimes need a little bit of a space just between women. And often that world was interpreted through the lens of a man because the world had been created by men. Yes, absolutely. And so, but still I do think it's important that men are partners. But I also want us to recognize that, you know, um, when we talk about gender mainstreaming, our experience in institutionalizing gender into government departments have proven for me without a shadow of a doubt that the that uh, that gender mainstreaming as a male stream 
as a slipstream, as a stream where women drown, you know, um, and as a stream that doesn't say what is the specific impact of our of our budget within our department, of our provision of housing, what are the impacts of those things differentially, you know, on the lives of, of women and men. And as long as we don't disaggregate, as long as we lump women and men together as a homogenous group, we're never going to be able to understand why we're not going forward. You've been on the job for a considerable period of time. You bring a wealth of experience within the gender space. You've had opportunities to observe of where our downfalls are. Looking towards the future, what do you think we need to do in order to improve or, or benefit women of the future? I think it starts with us in, in the way in which we conceptualize feminism. You know, I come from a generation that believes in binary opposites, you know, male, female. And now we've had, we have this wonderful new confident assertion that there are all kinds of ways of being a woman, you know. And so one of the, th one of the conversations that I think that we need to have as feminists is how do we create a feminism that is that includes you know we have an lgbt plus community out there who still don't see themselves as part of this movement for change and i think that many feminists are scared of entering into that conversation because we've spent so many years talking about you know men and women and patriarchy etc and now we're adding another dimension. But I think that, that going forward, I think that um, because I work um, outside of the country, one of the things that I do quite consciously is to work with women in my countries of accreditation. I create sister-to-sister -sister solidarity between women's groups in South Africa and women's groups in, um, in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar, um, in Bangladesh now, etc., etc. I think it's only once we understand the, the universality, if there's such a word, that patriarchy is universal, that it affects all of us, um, in the same ways, but through a different medium of culture, ethnicity, or religion. I think that it starts, first of all, with us um, creating that sense of solidarity. And I think that the hashtag movement is probably one of the most exciting, innovative things that has happened to feminism, because it has allowed us to have a new conversation. The hashtag phenomena worries me at the same time, because you can't have an in-depth, you can't mobilize on social media, you can mobilize emotion, but can we translate that emotion into a movement, you know, that can sustain and fight for peace? So um, I'm still hopeful, but I would still like to retire into my lavender garden and grow olives if I, if I could. There is too much work to be done before you get to have that, that luxury, but I'm sure it will happen. Could you tell us a little bit more about the, the dynamics of those almost sisterhood groups that are taking place? What types of positive outcomes they've yielded? In South Africa, um, you know, uh, a while ago we had a number of xenophobic attacks 
where uh, South Africans were were feeling uh, quite mistakenly, you know, threatened um, by the influx of economic migrants from the rest of Africa. Um, and what we did was to create social dialogues. You know, we created women's peace around tables and we invited women from Bangladesh and from South Africa, affected communities to talk about, you know, what were the driving factors? Why were they in the country? You know, what do we have in common? Because it's really just about, um, it's about poverty that drives people to leave. No one wants to leave their home. You know, they are driven because they are seeking better opportunities. And so at, uh, at, at the level of, um, of, 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 the, of grassroots, we've created uh, little um, uh, uh, communities in dialogue, women talking to each other, that has led to greater understanding, greater tolerance. And I've, I've learned recently that those women actually protect the Pakistani and Bangladeshi shopkeepers should there be an attack, you know. It's still very small, but that's the kind of social movement um, and consciousness of caring for each other, of recognizing that we all face a common enemy, and that is poverty, you know, and that our, our, um, our future well-being depends on us focusing on, on eradicating poverty and unemployment and inequality, and, and that if we hold hands around that, then, you know, that's a good way to move forward. And you've brought in my mind very much aspects of, of social cohesion, mm. a, a qualitative value, and you've been very strong about your, your values throughout our, our conversation today, and I think those are important principles which are in, enduring and endearing that will help galvanize communities together. Now turning towards more of a personal perspective as we, we come to the, towards the end of the show. One of the questions I ask all my guests who've made significant contributions in their respective fields of expertise are about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. So some people speak about hard work, perseverance, or a particular person in their life. Could you please share with us what have been some of your factors of success? I think as, as you know, I am 55 years old. I was born in 1963. I was born a year um, after Rob, uh, Nelson Mandela was imprisoned. And so I was, I was born in a decade where there were Group Areas Act. We were removed from where we were living as a family um, because we were classified as so-called colored. Um, you know, you had strikes that happened. You had the rise of the union movement in the 70s. During the 80s, I was very much part of the, of the school, um, uh, of, the, of, the, of the student movement. Um, and in the 90s, I'm part of the, of the generation that saw the end of apartheid, you know, of course, standing on the shoulders of many people who had gone before. And so, and so social context, social consciousness is shaped, you know, by, by, um, by the situation in which you are born into. You can't ignore politics. 
But to, to return a little bit more pertinently to your question, the, my shaping influence has definitely been poverty. My mother was a domestic worker. Um, we didn't have uh, permanent housing. We lived from one backyard to the other. Um, I was determined to survive my life. Um, I knew that no one was going to come and rescue me. My mother told me from an early age that the man is not a plan. So I was very clear that I had to rescue myself. And I, I grabbed opportunities. I had wonderful role models. My mother was an extremely funny, strong woman. But I also had role models like Mum Ruth Mumpati. You know, she's, um, she's passed away now, um, but she also served, um, because before we were, of course, formally allowed to be diplomats, um, we were frontline diplomats. We were representing the liberation movement in other countries. And Mamaruth Mampati, for example, um, she served in a few countries for the ANC, and she would always greet you by saying, my child, what did you do for, for our people to get today? Um, so she's the one strong influence for me. There's also Tulsi September, who was also classified as so-called colored. She was a teacher. She was the ANC representative in Paris, and she was the first diplomat from South Africa to be assassinated in the 60s. And she was a strong, fearless Patriot, you know, and then of course is Winnie Mandela, you know, someone who I've been vilified to such an extent in the press um, uh, by the by the mainstream media, and yet she was a survivor. She was she's one of my she's one of my heroes, you know. And then I've I've had three female ministers, you know, Kosozana Tlamini Zuma, who became the first female AU president. Um, she was the one who really pushed and pioneered getting more female ambassadors, you know, into um, to be sent out into the world. Um, then, of course, she was followed up by Mighty Kwana Mashabani, who during her presidency, because we were the, we had the presidency of COP17, and she made it one of the cornerstones of our campaign to develop a declaration for women where we said what did we want from climate change. And I remember that I went with her from, you know, to different provinces. We convened an Africa consultative meeting, a South African one, an international one as well. And then lately, of course, Minister Sulu, who occupied very non-traditional roles for women. Normally, they give women positions in soft positions, but she was Minister of Defense, she was Minister of Housing, she was Minister of Intelligence, and now she's in, in you know, in foreign affairs, and she does it with, um, you know, she performs being a minister very differently as well, you know, and I'm, I'm intrigued by that, because she's smart, she's beautiful, she's articulate, you know, and people are looking for a black suit, and she's saying, this is who I am, you know, um, um, and this is how we do diplomacy, you know, on our own terms. And so I love that unapologetic way of her, of presenting herself as a strong, able, beautiful, intelligent woman, you know, female minister to the world. So, so I'm fortunate. I, I always find role models in women, and I've been lucky that I have been promoted by women. 
I'm very proud of that because normally when women get into positions of power, the first question is, did you sleep with someone, you know? And I believe that our integrity, our personal integrity is everything, you know? So I cling to women, you know, I, I hold on to them and they've never let me down. It sounds like you are living out the whole concept you introduced at the, the gender focal point of lift as you climb. I try to. I try very much so. I'm conscious now. I used to be a very reluctant role model, um, firstly because I also suffered, like many women, from imposter uh, syndrome, you know, um, am I really here? You know, so I struggle to overcome that. One thing that I still struggle with is a sense of survivor's guilt, you know, because I should never have been in this position, you know. And that, that guilt is something that I've transformed into a much stronger commitment to work harder, you know, to find ways all the time to expand the small spaces that I'm sometimes given in order to make a change and to make a difference. And I, always, I also spend a lot of time, you know, just doing work with young women. When I was in Thailand, I was recognized by the royal family for the work that I was doing with young vulnerable women and I was given a, a medal by a princess by the princess and um, now in, in Sri Lanka I do the same thing I've started a little campaign where we collect sanitary towels and give it to poor orphaned girls who were affected by the war and so wherever I go I, I, I try consciously to be you know to be a visible role model um, which is tough because sometimes a girl wants to, you know, just let her hair down, but uh, we've got a task to do. So, And I think one of the, the big messages and, and takeouts that I've had today in, in the conversations is about sacrifice and sacrifice of oneself for the greater good of being able to, to serve others. They may not know what you're giving up, but you know that what you're doing is going to make an impact on their lives. Absolutely. That's the legacy that I want to leave behind. I'm a, I'm a mother, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a mother without children. And so for me, um, uh, um, I try and find ways in which to leave behind a legacy. You know, um, I try to find ways in which I can leave something behind that people can look back and say, you know, she was the first in a family, but she was able to achieve this. And I, I think that's important. Um, legacy is not just, you know, your parents leaving your money, you know, which would be nice, of course. But legacy can also be what your mother leaves you, a sense of resilience, of commitment, a sense of, of um, you know, of, of, of standing up for yourself. You know, that's also the type of legacy that we can build within in ourselves and within others as well. And finally, as we close out our conversation today, could you please share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to impart to young ladies listening to us on the continent? You must do the thing that you think you cannot do. You must always do the thing that you think that you think you cannot do. This is not original. It was something that was said by Eleanor Roosevelt. And um, uh, I don't know a lot about her politics, but it's something that I, that I believe in. Because when I did the things that I thought I couldn't do, I had my greatest reward, you know. Um, the other one that I also live by is... Um, 
It's just that we, um, of course, I said, you know, that, um, uh, um, yeah, the, the favorite one from Madeleine Albright, you know, where she says there's a special place in hell for women who don't help or care for other women. Um, I think those things are very important for me. I think that we live in a world that is extremely cynical about women supporting each other. I think that we live in a world that wants to put us against each other. And I think it's important for us to have a simple, naive belief that as women, you know, if we have the same common issues, the same common enemy, which is not men, but patriarchy, and that if we hold hands together and find our, you know, our shared values, you know, our shared goals, we can overcome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on our show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Doctor. And we wish you all the very best to a day of uh, lavender fields and olive groves. Come and join me. <laughs> You're more than welcome. That was South Africa's High Commissioner to Sri Lanka, Rubina Marks. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman Immunity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective.